So uh, tell me, what do you think would be the wisest action to take in this situation? I'm going to explain the situation. What do you think is the wisest course of action? Imagine with me, you and a friend, just the two of you, you're on a hike. And while you're on a hike, you come across a mama bear and her cubs. But it's not just any bear. It's a grizzly bear. Okay, you and your friend, but it gets worse. When you see the grizzly bear, the mama bear, she looks at you and she feels threatened. So she immediately starts charging after you and your friend to attack you. Now tell me, what do you think would be the wisest action to take? Keep in mind, keep in mind, grizzly bears can run, they can sprint up to 40 miles an hour, and they can climb trees. Tell me, what do you think would be the wisest course of action to take? Okay. Uh, outrun your friend. Okay. Yes. A a anyone else? Get, get small. No? Trip your friend. Wow. Pray. Pray. Oh, pray. Okay, pray. Well, actually, if, if you can believe it, the National Park Service has chimed in on this situation. And you know what they say? This. Never push a slower friend down when you come across a bear. Just on February 23rd of this year, the National Park sent this tweet. If you come across a bear, never push a slower friend down. And then they say this. Quote, even if you feel the friendship has run its course. Now, I, I guess uh, people have been actually doing this. And as you can imagine on the, on the Twitter thread, the replies were quite humorous. Now, you might never face a grizzly bear on a hike. In fact, I hope you don't. But you know what? There are loads of other situations where you will need wisdom. Indeed, do you know that as a Christian, those of you here this morning have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, do you know that as a Christian, you are actually commanded to walk in wisdom? For, for the last several weeks, we've been studying Ephesians chapter 5. And in the opening verse of that chapter, Paul, he kind of gives us his thesis for the next 20 verses and we could summarize it in this, and that is, don't be yourself, imitate God. Paul is writing to Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and he's saying, look, don't be yourself. No, you imitate God. The, the Christian life is not one of self-actualization, no, the Christian life is one of self-crucifixion. That is, we die to ourselves, we die to living for ourselves, and instead we live for Christ. 
Indeed, as, as Paul articulates in the first two verses of chapter 5, we, we live for Christ, we imitate God as His children. And in Ephesians 5, 1 through 20, Paul lays out three ways we're to imitate God. First, we're to imitate God by walking in love. We're to imitate God by walking in light. And then Paul, who missed a huge opportunity to alliterate here, he instead said we are to imitate God by walking in wisdom. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. But what does it mean to walk in wisdom? I mean, it sounds nice. Indeed, does it, does it not even sound desirable? I mean, who wouldn't want to live their life? Who wouldn't want to walk in wisdom, in the path of wisdom? But what does that mean biblically? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, if you haven't already. That's page 978 in that white paperback Bible on the chair in front of you. And as you're turning there, I, I need to ask you a question, or let me ask you a question. You don't have to say it out loud, but do you think imitating God by walking in wisdom is something that's going to be easy and come naturally to you? Or do you think better stated, or do you believe that it will require intentional effort on your part? I ask that because, Faith, I need to prepare you. Walking in wisdom is a hike. It, it is hard because, as we're about to see, it goes against our natural disposition in so many ways. Indeed, for you and I to do what God's Word calls us to do, to walk in wisdom, it's going to require you to make changes in your life. Changes, please hear me, you may not even be aware of right now. So this morning, I want to invite you to hold every aspect of your life with an open hand. Indeed, before we read this text, I want to invite you to ask yourself, am I willing to submit every aspect of my life, all of it, to submit it under the Lordship of Jesus? Am I willing to conform myself so that I could please Him? By the way, if you're still wondering, what should I do if I encounter a grizzly bear? I'll let you Google it and find out yourself, okay? But now, uh, follow along with me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 15 and 20. So Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Look carefully then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So there it is. We want to walk in wisdom. 
Got to look carefully. So, okay, Paul, so what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Notice the first verse here, or verse 16. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, notice the contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Don't be foolish, but to walk in wisdom, you need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now God's people said, Amen and Amen. What's wrong? Do you happen to know what major milestone occurred just a few weeks ago on April 3rd? No, it doesn't have to do with hockey. It doesn't have to do with hockey. But, do anyone know? That's a good guess, though. I'll, I'll tell you, on, on April 3rd, that day marked the 50th anniversary of the cell phone. Can you believe it? The, the first cell phone, affectionately named the Brick, contained 30 circuit boards, stood 9 inches tall, and weighed 2.5 pounds. As Smithsonian Magazine notes, this mobile phone took approximately 10 hours to fully charge. Even then, conversations were capped at around 35 minutes before the brick needed to refuel. refuel. It would be another decade before Motorola released a commercial cell phone, and not many could afford it because the first commercial cell phone sold for $3,500. But listen to this. But four decades since then, there are now more phones than there are human beings on this planet with 18 billion devices in service. Do you remember when you got your first cell phone? Do you? I remember. It was, a, it was an Nokia candy bar cell phone, right? It, it was indestructible. I could like throw it against a wall and it would still work. I wonder, how much time do you think you spend on your phone every day? What about every week? Friend, notice what Paul writes there in verse 15. To, to walk in wisdom demands that we examine our lives. We need to stop what we're doing, take, close to, take, take the time to look carefully at our lives, to see what we're doing. It requires self-examination. And then notice, what's the first aspect of our lives Paul wants us to examine there in verse 15? Time. How we spend our time. Faith, to walk in wisdom 
means first that you be intentional with your time. Look at verse 16 once more. Now that phrase that you see there, the days are evil, that refers to this present evil age, which is sometimes referred to in other places in the New Testament. The Bible sees all reality as represented by two ages, the present age and the coming age. No, the present age is evil. One day Christ will return and subdue all his enemies and make all things right. And that's our great hope. But until then, believers are urged to walk with wisdom. And as Paul uses, the language Paul uses, and to make use of every opportunity. So, how can you, how can I be intentional with our time? Well, by way of application, I want to invite you to do something. Later today, I'm going to post this timesheet on Realm. And here's what I'd, I'd like you to do. I couldn't get the whole thing on there. It, it does go further down, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to print this off from Rome, and I'd like you to pick two days this upcoming week. Pick, pick a weekday and a weekend day. And I want to invite you to record how you spend your time. And please hear me, be brutally honest. Don't fill it out aspirationally, okay? But fill it out honestly and be specific. So for example, if from one to three, you're at your kid's soccer practice, but you're also reading a book during that time, write that down from one to three, at kid's soccer practice, read these, these pages in the book. Or if you're at work and you're playing a game on your phone, put work and then from here to here, I was playing a game on my phone. Faith, look closely at how you spend your time. And then ask yourself, am I making the best use of it? Are there any habits that I'm giving too much time to? Are there any spiritual disciplines or Christian obligations that I'm neglecting? And on a 30,000 foot view level, as you look at how you've spent your time on a weekday and then one of the days on the weekends, ask yourself, is it evident from here that I'm making it my aim to please Christ with how I spend my time? And then I'm going to press in a little bit more. Now, again, at the very beginning of the sermon, I told you it's going to require work. And I even asked you if you thought this would come yet easily, and you said, no, it's not going to come easily. Okay, so then this is what I would invite you to do. After you record it, share these two sheets with someone in your community group. And in humility say, would you look this over and help me? Am, do you think I'm using my time wisely? Do you think I could be doing something more or something less? Do you see that I'm neglecting something? 
Faith, if you want to know what you truly treasure, look at how you spend your time and your money. And if through this exercise something is off, in humility and repentance, make course corrections. But then second, to walk in wisdom, we see that you must be immersed in God's Word. Look at verse 17 again. And again, notice the contrast between foolishness and wisdom. He says, therefore, do not be foolish. Okay, so what's the opposite of being foolish? But un- excuse me, understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, you know what I never thought would interest me? Well, there's, a, there's a lot of things. But you know what I never thought would interest me? Growing grass. <laughs> Yet here I am, 44 years old, and I spent hours and hours this week preparing my yard to lay down grass seed and I enjoyed it. Okay? Now, although I am a novice at things around the yard, I do know that for a grass seed to grow strong, it must be immersed in good, rich soil, right? I mean, you cannot expect grass to grow on rock-hard dirt. Well, faith, likewise, if we're going to walk in wisdom, then we need to be immersed in the source of God's wisdom, and that is God's Word. Indeed, you ought not expect to grow in wisdom if you neglect the careful study and application of God's Word. It's important to note that when Paul exhorts us to understand what the will of the Lord is, He's not referring to some secret or hidden will of God. Rather, Paul is referring to the Lord's will as revealed in Scripture. You see, Faith, part of the reason why I want you to fill out these timesheets is so you can accurately see just how much or maybe just how little you and me, we are immersing ourselves in the source of God's wisdom, His Word. Because look, I have a better chance of growing grass on hard, dry clay than you and I have of walking in wisdom while neglecting the careful study of the Word of God. In fact, you know, in fact, I would be really curious. I would be really curious to learn just how much time we, just the members of Faith Community Church, actually read the Bible every day. Let us be found faithful, church, to give our time and attention to knowing this and applying it. But then third, to walk in wisdom, and I'm using my words carefully here, you need to be influenced by the Spirit. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul writes this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to throw a Bible verse on the screen here. I'm going to read it. And as I read it, I I don't want you to say it out loud, but I want you to think for a moment who the author is talking about. Don't have to say it out loud, but just think who the author is talking about. Proverbs 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Now, now first off, does, does that sound like a good life? No. So, so who do you think the author is talking about? Well, listen to what he writes next. He gives us the answer. Who is it that has redness of eyes, wounds without cause? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. And then he says this, You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have Another drink. Faith, you know who the author is talking about? He's talking about the person who loves alcohol. Now notice what Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 18. Again, this is in the context. He's, he's giving us instructions on how to walk in wisdom. And notice what, I mean, of all the things to add of how, what it means to walk in wisdom, notice what he adds. In verse 18 he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And you know why Paul wrote this? Because Christians can have an indulgent love for alcohol. Both men and women. I mean, think of Paul's admonition to women in Titus 2.3 when he instructs older women, what? Not be slaves to much wine. Or consider again what the author of Proverbs writes in Proverbs 20, verse 1. 
Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not what? He doesn't say drunkenness is a mocker. He doesn't say intoxication is a brawler. He says wine is this. Strong drink is this. Put this verse above your liquor cabinet at home. For this is just one of the many verses that speak of the dangers of alcohol. Now, to be sure, I am not saying, say it with me, I am not saying that the Bible forbids the consumption of alcohol. You know why I'm not saying that? Because the Bible doesn't forbid the consumption of alcohol. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. But please hear me. While it is important that we don't say more than what the Bible says, it's also very important that we don't say less than what the Bible says. And my concern is that Christians can have such a love for drink, they ignore these warnings of Scripture. Faith, if we're going to walk in wisdom, then we need to take into account everything Scripture says about alcohol consumption, especially the warnings, which is exactly what we have here in Ephesians 5.18. Indeed, heeding the warnings of Proverbs 20 in Ephesians 5.18 does not make a Christian a moralist. It makes them biblical. And I think it's important to ask, in humility... Christian, what is your disposition towards alcohol? Do you view it as God does? As he clearly articulates in Scripture, and I, and I would say there should be with seriousness and concern. I mean, how can you not consider the weight of alcohol consumption in light of almost an entire chapter, Proverbs 23, and then Proverbs 20, verse 1? We are commanded not to get drunk with wine, yet we're never going to be able to do that unless we view strong drink and wine biblically. And I also just want to say as a side note, there's no qualifications when he says, do not be drunk for this is debauchery. He doesn't say, just don't get drunk when you're at a restaurant, but you can get plastered at home. That's okay. You've had, you've had a hard work week. Take another. Not for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of being drunk under the influence of alcohol, we are instead to be filled with the Spirit. Look again at verse 18. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled 
with the Spirit. Now, what does it exactly mean to be filled with the Spirit? Some understand this to mean that the Holy Spirit is what the believers are filled with, that that, that is the content. So, so even though Christians possess the Spirit through their union with Christ, they still need to pursue ongoing fillings of the Spirit. Others understand this phrase to mean that the Holy Spirit is the one who fills believers. That is, you're filled by the means of the Spirit. And I would suggest this seems to make the most sense for several reasons. First, as New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien has articulated in his commentary, there's no grammatical reason to interpret the Spirit as the content of the filling, meaning like I have to get more of the Spirit filled up each and every day. But then second, it seems odd that Paul would talk about the need for more and more Spirit fillings given what he's already taught in the book of Ephesians. I mean, all through chapter 1, chapter 2, and verse 3, we talk about the fullness of God, being filled with God, being the fullness of God. Indeed, if we're reading Ephesians carefully, Paul does not believe that Christians have any deficit of the Spirit, does he? But then third, there is no other place in the New Testament where we are told that we need more of the Spirit. So I would suggest, I understand that Paul is not asking us to seek more and more of the Spirit. Rather, he's asking us to depend on the Spirit to make us more and more like Christ. That's why the idea is that you would be influenced by the Spirit. And notice, Paul actually outlines several marks of a Spirit-filled Christian. And these, these are things we ought to pursue. And there's, there's actually three here. We're going to just look at the first two, and then we next week we're going to pick up on the last one. But notice first, look at verse 19 again. First, we're to admonish one another in song. Did you see it there in verse 19? He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what this verse is talking about? It's speaking to the importance of corporate worship. And notice, when we gather to sing on Sunday mornings, please hear me, we're not just doing something to kill time. No, we're actually engaging in an activity, faith, please hear me, that is vital to our growth as Christians. In the act of corporate worship where we're standing and we're singing, we are instructing and admonishing one another with biblical truth. This is why the most important voice that needs to be heard on church when we sing is the congregation's. This is why Greg and our sound guys work hard so the sound levels are just set so you can hear the musicians and the, and the leader just enough to follow them but so that we can hear one another. Look, when you go to a concert, the most important sound is the one coming from the stage. Amen? Not in corporate worship. We want the music team and the worship leader to be loud enough so we, the church, can hear and follow their lead, but it ought not to be so loud so as to drown out the congregation's voice. 
And why is that? Because in worship, again, let me say it, we're not doing like the warm-up to the sermon. We're speaking truth to one another. And you know what? I need to hear it, and you need to hear it. We need to hear each other's voices declare biblical truths in song. So Faith, please hear me. When we sing at church, we're not performing some mundane task. We're not just trying to get everybody, you know, energized. No, we're fulfilling a biblical command and an important one at that. And oh, what what a joy it is to hear those behind me and in front of me sing. Whether it's the Robins or the Newmans, the people up here, those around me, wherever we're sitting. What a joy it is to hear your voices. This is also why we are careful in our selection of songs. Uh, In case you're wondering, and this actually might be news to some of you, but on Sunday morning, uh, I as the pastor, I'm the one who chooses the songs we're going to sing because we understand this to fall under the shepherding aspect at church. Because look, (laughs) you might remember something that I say. Might. But you will remember a song. I mean, some of you know jingles from the 70s still, right? Okay, You will remember songs. That's why it's very important that the songs that we choose to sing as a church are theologically sound and biblically accurate. And notice, we're just singing various types of songs. Did you see it there in that passage? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We did that this morning. One of our songs was Colossians 3, 15 through 17. We've also put other scripture verses to, to melody. We make it our aim at faith to sing songs that are congregational in nature and that are faithful to what Paul calls us to do here. And by way of application, I would say this. Please know, you cannot fulfill this command. Think about this. You, you cannot fulfill this aspect of being influenced by the Spirit by failing to come to church. That is, your attendance is needed. We need to hear your voice encouraging and admonishing others in song. So I would invite us to do away with this false notion that coming to church is a passive activity. It's not. Friend, please hear me. You're not a spectator. You're a participant and a needed one at that. Those who are influenced and directed by the Spirit sing. But then second, I want you to notice that a Spirit-directed person gives thanks. Look at verse 20 again. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. As as we discussed a few weeks ago, giving thanks is one of the greatest weapons you can employ in your fight against sin and temptation. Indeed, I would suggest gratitude is the antidote to every sin. And it's really God is God has been so kind because uh, 
since we discussed this several weeks ago, God, through his pruning hand, has brought about some difficult and hard circumstances in my life. And I've had the opportunity to apply this. And I need to confess to you personally the discipline of working hard to give thanks to God in each and every circumstance is what has allowed me to, remain, to maintain my sanity. <laughs> but not only my sanity, but my joy amidst what could be hardships. G- gratitude, it, it helps us fight sin. You fight greed the greed to want more by giving thanks to what He has given you. You fight sexual temptation by giving thanks to God for His good and life-giving commands that He has for this aspect of life. And I want to, I want to just drill down for a moment and, and touch on something I think is very important for us to understand, especially in the cultural moment that we now live. Pastor and author Kevin Swanson has a short radio program called The Worldview in Five Minutes. Kevin Swanson, The Worldview in Five Minutes, I highly recommend it. And in a recent episode, he makes the correct observation that is what underneath transgenderism is a lack of thankfulness. Transgendered people are not thankful to God for the body He has given them. Indeed, this is true of many of the disorders we experience in the body. How many cases of anorexia and bulimia would immediately disappear if those people with an appreciation of what God has done for them in Christ and what He's given them if they actually gave thanks to God for the body He has given them. And there's an important application here for parents and grandparents. Christian parent, regularly tell your son, I am so glad God made you a boy. Regularly tell your daughter, I am so glad that God made you a girl. Don't have this be a one-time thing. Let's acknowledge the wisdom of our God, the goodness of our God, and how He's made us, how He's created us, and let's celebrate that in our families. Grandparents, do the same. I'm so glad, when you say to your grandson, I'm so glad that God made you a boy. Or your granddaughter, I'm so glad that God made you a girl. Let us cultivate thankfulness to God for the physical bodies He has given us. And I, and I cannot overemphasize how important it is that we cultivate thankfulness in our lives as well as in our homes. Failure to give thanks, please hear me, for all things is a cancer that will destroy a person and those around them. And I, and I want to say, and I'm not speaking 
hyperbolically here. Listen, we have college campuses that are filled with students who have intentionally alienated themselves from their parents. And you know why the students have alienated themselves from the parents? Because the students believe that they're victims. And what are they victims of? They believe that they are the victims of their parents not fulfilling all the wishes and desires they want. Instead of going on vacation for four days, we only went on vacation for three days. Instead of getting the new iPhone, I got last year's model. Instead of getting this to, out to eat, we had to go here instead. And these students have convinced themselves that they've been wronged and deprived by their parents. Instead of giving thanks to God for what they've been given, they are bitter because their parents would not give them more. Never mind that their parents are paying for their college, their car, their rent, their food. Never mind that they grew up in a Christian home whose parents made it their aim to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Imperfect to be sure, but in a Christian home nonetheless. Yet instead of being thankful for all God has given them, especially Christian parents, these students are ungrateful and believe themselves to have been wronged by those closest to them. And as a result, they are bitter, self-absorbed people who believe everyone else is their problem. Oh, but if they were thankful. What if they cultivated thanksgiving? What if they didn't keep asking for more and more and more and more and being disappointed when they don't get what they want, but instead were thankful and grateful. Faith, let us walk in wisdom. And a big part of that is giving thanks, as Paul says, always and for everything. So to close, can I ask, are there certain areas of your life you've neglected to give thanks to God for? Are there certain areas in your life where entitlement has taken over? To all of us, look. <laughs> I'm going to make an assumption here, and if I'm, if I'm wrong, forgive me. But I think all of us, or I'll put it this way, none of us look as good as we want to look. Right? <laughs> right? When's the last time you gave thanks to God for your body and how he's made you specifically? Let me ask you this. What comes out of your mouth more frequently, complaining or thanksgiving? Faith, though we are owed eternal damnation in hell for our sin, in Christ we've been given eternal life. Amen? We are owed judgment, but we've received mercy in Christ. All of life is a gift from our good God. 
Let us therefore have thanksgiving be on our lips daily as we seek to walk in wisdom. Amen? Let's pray.